Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Chris Ginshear, for those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet yet, and I am thankful to be invited back to preach God's Word to you. We're going to be reading from John chapter 4, and if you haven't noticed by now, whenever I'm here, I'm just preaching through the book of John. And so I'm having fun with this. I hope you are as well, learning a lot about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through this gospel. John chapter 4. Uh, I'm trying to be better, too. I'm trying to limit myself to only a section of the chapter, and yet today is still going to be 30 verses. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's listen to God's word from John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside that well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, well, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you speak to us. We ask that you speak to us now in a way that we can hear you and respond to you in faith and joy and love and all the gifts that you would bestow upon us by your spirit. Lead us now, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, it's been a few weeks, but the last time I was here, we, we talked through John chapter 3, and this is where we see Jesus speaking with a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader in the middle of the night. And today we move on to John chapter 4, where we see Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day. These two situations couldn't be more polar opposite from the get-go of what's happening here. And yet with Nicodemus, they discuss what it means to be born again. And with the woman at the well, Jesus offers her the amazing gift of God's living water, something that they all surprisingly have in common. This is what's going on here. This is why this, this interchange, this interaction Jesus has with the Samaritan woman is, is one that's well known, but I don't know that it's well uh, plumbed. I don't know that it's well explored. We think of it as just Jesus talking with a, a woman who lives a promiscuous life and offers her living water and she receives it and her life has changed. But there's so much more going on here. Just look at this. What we see at first is a series of surprising decisions of Jesus. So when we read in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria, that's the first surprising decision. Because you see, back in Jesus' day, the Jews and the Israelites would have avoided Samaria at all costs. So what Jesus is trying to do, he, he's actually trying to travel through the promised land. And it would be much easier to get to where he's going if he goes through Samaria. But traditionally and culturally, everyone would go on the other side of the Jordan River to avoid Samaria and add several days to the journey to get wherever they're going throughout the promised land. So when John says Jesus had to go to Samaria, that's Jesus' intentionality. He, he's purposefully going to Samaria instead of doing what everyone else around him would do, which is avoid him. You see, in verse 9, John tells us that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Well, why is that? For those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with the, the Old Testament scriptures or church history or, or any of this stuff, there was a falling out. There was a, a period of, of, of a division between the northern and southern kingdoms in, Jerusalem, in, the, Israel, uh, in the Israel nation. And what had happened was in about 722 before Christ era, you had the Assyrians come in and take away a bunch of people from the northern kingdom. They left a few, but they took the majority away, and they would have been what's called living in exile. But the people who remained were stuck there. They didn't have any religious leaders. Most of them were taken away. It was just mostly common people. And what Assyrians would do was they would populate a new land with people from other countries, other nationalities, other ethnicities. And so the Samaritans were this group of people in the northern kingdom that were left to figure out how to live amidst a group of people with a lot of differing beliefs. And so they ended up marrying some of these people. Their own identity started to merge and shift with some of the identities and, and cultures and traditions and even religious worship of the people around them. The Israelites viewed the Samaritans as being impure and illegitimate because they had intermarried with the Assyrians and other foreign peoples. The religious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans would grow into the fourth century 
when the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and we're going to come back to that later. But they built this temple because they actually thought this is really the proper place of worship, not Jerusalem, where the Israelites and the Jews were centrally located. You see, Gerizim was the place they claimed to be a holier site. It was where... Um, It was where Abraham was known to offer up his son as a sacrifice, nearly sacrificing him before God stopped him. It's where Israel received blessings from the Lord when they entered the promised land. It was where they actually interpreted Deuteronomy 27 as the place of which God called the Israelites to build the first temple or tabernacle. All of this was in their mind when they said, when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we locate everything centrally happening around Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And those Israelites who would later see the further ongoing development of God's revealing his will to the Israelites to say, no, it's in Jerusalem, they just couldn't agree on how to interpret the scriptures. And so the Israelites or the Jews completely avoided and shunned the Samaritans. This is the first thing that should surprise us about Jesus saying he had to go to Samaria. He was one of the only ones of his day that would ever say such a thing. But he goes to Samaria, he stops at the well because he's tired, and he says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. The next surprising thing we see here is that Jesus is talking to a woman. Now, in our 21st century, highly enlightened sort of thing, we would never think that this is controversial. But in Jesus' day, this was. Men wouldn't just go up and talk to a woman. It was highly improper. Not only that, Jesus asks something of her to give me a drink. So not only is he an Israelite, a Jew, talking to a Samaritan, not only is he a man talking to a woman, he's now actually asking of her something more than just, can I get a sip from your water bottle? He's actually inviting her into something more deeper. You see, they're actually sharing a, a, a drink or a meal. When's the last time you went up to a complete stranger and said, hey, let's go grab a drink together? I mean, we don't even do that now. But Jesus went up to her and does that. In other words, he's saying, let's get to know each other a little bit here. I'm thirsty. I can't quite get water. Will you give me a drink of water? And that was an invitation to something deeper, actually an invitation to a form of hospitality, which itself was a signifier of a deeper fellowship relationship, even if it was temporary. By this time, the the animosity between the Israelites and the Samaritans were so deep, in fact, that they would refuse to share anything, including utensils with each other. So when Jesus is doing this, he's crossing a, a social, an ethnic, a cultural, all these different barriers with this conversation with this woman that so far has just seemed rather uh, innocuous. Like it's, it's simple what he's asking here. But notice something else that's surprising. He's doing all this, and later on in this passage, we hear the woman saying, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, in verse 19. So as if that's not enough of surprising decisions that Jesus makes, later on she realizes, Oh, Jesus, you're not just a man. You seem to know an awful lot about me. You must be a prophet. So not only is Jesus crossing an ethnic, a cultural, a traditional even what we might call a a proper sort of boundary between men and women in this case, she realizes, oh, he, he knows me at my worst. I can only assume he must be a prophet, a religious man, someone who 
has a closer relationship with God than I do. Jesus is crossing barriers in John chapter 4, from the ethnic and cultural to the social, even down to the religious, and we might even say moral barriers that tend to separate people from one another. Jesus crosses over all these barriers to get to know on a deep and personal level this Samaritan woman, we don't even know her name. She is a stranger to Jesus. She's a stranger to us, and yet we find her here in John chapter 4 having a deep personal conversation with Jesus himself. If that's the series of surprising decisions that Jesus is making here, he goes on to have a set of shocking statements. Let's look at the first one. Verse 10. After Jesus asks for a drink and the woman says, well, with what? You don't have anything to draw water from and, and who are you to even ask this of me? He responds in verse 10 by saying, um, if you had simply known who was asking you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And this ensues the first part of sort of the, we're not quite hearing each other, what Nicodemus and Jesus would say, what do you mean I have to be born again? The woman goes in and is saying, well, what kind of water are you talking about? When Jesus says he would have given you living water, think about this. They're at this well. Jesus has already told us, or John has told us, that Jesus is tired. He's weary from his journey. It's natural to want to drink in that situation. The woman is going to this well because she's obviously thirsty and needs water. With the woman going to the well, though, she's going at noon, which would have been atypical. It wasn't ordinary. When, when the women from the village would go to the well, it would be early in the day, before the sun comes out. It's the same reason why our kids, when they play football in our schools, they have one-a-day or two-a-days that usually start at 6 or 7 a.m. or at like 4 or 5 in the afternoon, never in the middle of the day, never in the hottest part of the day. You just don't do that. You want to go when it's comfortable, when it's it's, it's easier to not be dehydrated and, and under the blast of the heat in the desert. She goes at noon. She goes alone, whereas everyone else would kind of come together as a bit of a, a community effort. But she goes alone. She is so thirsty that she will avoid what's customary in order to get this water. And now she probably had to do this every single day. Because back then, you don't have running water, you don't have even cisterns, or you don't have you know, aqueducts that would lead into the village. You'd have to go to a place that was collecting water. And you'd have to bring your, bring your basket, bring your bucket, bring your vessel, dip it in, grab the water that you would need to not only drink, prepare food, clean yourself or your utensils. Like It was like your daily ration of water that you had to pour and get up at this trip. Jesus, though, is talking about something that is so similar and yet unlike the water that she is trying to get. He calls it living water, not stuff, stale water that you scoop up, but water that flows, water that doesn't seem to end, water that has a source that sometimes it's hard to identify, but you know it's there. This would have been a, an extreme offer. This would have been like... A, I don't know, you know the scenario where you're, you kind of pretend like there's such a thing as a genie in a bottle, right? And, and you're told, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? And we all give kind of the smart-alecky answer. Well, the first wish is to have an infinite number of wishes, right? That's about the same level of what Jesus is offering this woman in this situation. 
She's there because she's thirsty. She needs water. And Jesus is saying, I'll give you water that never ends. She still doesn't quite believe it. When we think of this, we, I don't know if we just take it for granted, but this stuff of water is really significant to us. I can't even preach this sermon without having to get this water bottle to finish talking for about 20 to 30, maybe 35 minutes. <laughs> right? How long can you last without ever having a sip or a drink of water? You probably know this. It's kind of common knowledge or what my kids would call, yeah, I've seen that video on TikTok or YouTube, right? That explains, you know, the human being can live maybe 30 days without food, but only three days without water. We don't have a lot to go on if we don't have water. It is literally the stuff of our life. It's right up there just second to oxygen. We can't live without this stuff. It's because our bodies are naturally made up of water. So when you're really, really thirsty, which I would venture to believe none of us have ever really been on the verge of dying of thirst, even though we use that language. Maybe we have. I don't want to make assumptions. But we have ready access to this resource. We maybe know what it's like to be thirsty. We maybe know what it's like to be slightly dehydrated. Maybe we have been to the point where we've been so dehydrated we've had to be hospitalized. But even then, they give us literally an IV tube of the stuff. We don't know what it's like when water is a matter of life or death. In this day, in this age, if you don't have water, you're done. So when Jesus is offering her this, he's saying, your body screams in pain just when it's physically thirsty. What I'm offering you is something that will overwhelm and soothe whatever pain you have on a physical level. Here, Jesus offers up a spring of living water, something that wells up from inside, not just something you scoop out from the outside. Jesus is here saying, you have a thirst you know and one you don't really know, a deeper soul-level thirst. You see, she was going off by herself to gather this water, probably because of the facts Jesus mentioned. She's gone through or have had five husbands, and she's living with a man now that's not even her husband, something that would have been regarded as shameful in that day. In other words, she was avoiding the town just as much as the town was shunning her. She was alone. She was isolated. She was probably under a bannering cloud of shame, and yet here she is gathering water that she needs and masking a pain she doesn't realize she has. But Jesus presses into that. That's why in verse 16, the next shocking statement he makes is, he says, go call your husband. And she says, you know, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have one. You have had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, before we kind of get onto this, Jesus is not actually condemning her. Jesus is pointing to something, though, deeper that's going on in her life. He is trying to point to a, a place of conviction, but not condemnation. You see, we read this and we say, Jesus, you're kind of going for the jugular here, aren't you? I mean, good night. At least kind of warm up to the hard part of the conversation. At least lead with something positive. But don't just go right to the heart of the matter. What Jesus is doing is this. He's, he's actually calling out 
the thing in her life she has been tiptoeing around, but not really addressing or dealing with. And let me just say this. We actually don't know the circumstances of this woman. We don't know why she has had five husbands and why she's living with the one she's living with now, supposedly just living, maybe more. It may be that she, uh, maybe she was promiscuous, right? That's kind of the assumption we make. But we don't necessarily know that. You see, she has had five husbands. Now, there's one of two situations that could have happened. One is she was literally a widower or a widow five times over. That could have been the case. If I have had to live through the loss of five people that I was connected with on every level of my life, I frankly don't know how I would respond in that situation. I can actually have a little bit of empathy for this woman if that was the case. There's another situation though in which a woman of her day and age could have had five husbands. And it was that her husband's just completely divorced her. Now in our day too, that might come as like, well, that's no surprise. People get divorced all the time. Half of all marriages end in divorce. The difference is this. Here, it can actually come across or it can be initiated by either party in the marriage. In this day, only the husband could issue a certificate of divorce. In other words, the divorce wouldn't have been her choice. It would have been something she just had to live with. And it wasn't like the only grounds for divorce was something like adultery. In fact, it literally could have been anything. She could have improperly cooked a meal. And the husband would have said, this, this chicken was cold. I'm divorcing you. My, my, my sons and I were actually studying and working through John together. And my 11, who at the time was 11, now he's 12, but this was only a couple weeks ago, uh, when he found out that any, any man could have divorced a woman, his natural instinct was, wow, she must have been really annoying. He wasn't far off on what could constitute grounds for divorce in that day. So before we jump to the conclusion that this was just a promiscuous woman living in sin, let's maybe not assume that from the get-go and realize that she's gone through some very hard stuff in her life. Not to excuse anything, and Jesus doesn't excuse it. But he doesn't condemn her. He's calling out the deepest pains that she has felt and experienced in her life and saying, stop ignoring this. Stop tiptoeing around it. Don't you realize that you're not just coming to this well because you're thirsty? You're avoiding the people in your life. You're not dealing with the things at home because somehow deeper on a level you can't even perceive, your soul is thirsty and starved and dehydrated. You need to deal with this, in other words. Now she's with another man. Maybe it was to shack up with somebody. Maybe it was giving in to carnal desires. Maybe it was just self-preservation. If you were a, a, a married to unmarried woman in Jesus' day, you did not have a lot of prospects for your life. If you were a woman, you didn't have a lot of prospects beyond your attachment to a man and a husband. So now imagine being completely ignored, cast out, relegated by five men throughout your life. And you're having to start over and figure it out. Either way, she knew and Jesus knew. She wasn't living in a way that she was supposed to at this point. 
But Jesus isn't condemning her. He's convicting her. He's saying your soul-level thirst is manifesting itself in seeking life, support, and satisfaction in anything you think is going to offer it. We would call this an idol, right? I know we want to jump to the sin word, but let me, let me actually call this out a little bit. Let's look at our confession of sin. You don't have to pull it up, but I was reading this. I've got the, I've got the full version here. You guys have the slides. But we actually confessed something earlier today in our time together. When we say we are quick to despair, to believe lies, and to turn to other things for relief. That's true. When we feel undone by our strong emotions, which often are triggered by our life circumstances, we escape quickly into sins that offer us false comfort and hollow love. What I want you to do is start thinking of next time you say or think the word sin, try to replace it with the word replacement. We are, when we feel undone by our strong emotions or life circumstances, we escape quickly into replacements that offer us false comfort and hollow love. You see, sin is not just a list of things you do that you're not supposed to. It's not like there's seven deadly or ten ultimate sins you can commit. Sin is anything we seek to replace God with. In other words, sin can be a good thing that we turn into a God thing that then becomes a bad thing. Romans chapter 1, Paul will talk about this in the New Testament where he says that the greatest sin humanity has ever committed is that we have rejected the creator and instead have worshipped his creation. We take the good gifts God provides and we use them as substitutes for bringing us the life, support, and satisfaction we desperately crave and ultimately need. The problem is not with a laundry list of things we're to avoid or good things we're supposed to do. It's that we have no regard for our creator and instead look to anything else to satisfy us. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We would call this an idol. It's something that offers life but never fulfills it because it skips over and doesn't address the real deep-level need that we have and that only God can provide. It's like we choose to drink salt water when what we need is fresh, living water. Salt water just accelerates the problem. If we were stuck at sea, if we were in the middle of the desert and we've gone two and a half days without water, we would see any wet substance as what we need to live and go on another hour, and we would take it. But if that water is, is salty, if that water has anything in it that is less than pure, we are just accelerating our problems and our demise, not actually satisfying it. That's what Jesus is getting at with her. He's saying, stop looking for substitutes when the actual savior is at your disposal when the thing you need to give you that life that you crave is actually there the idol is just false and it makes our real thirst even worse it never satisfies but she goes on from there and she goes into a bit of a, a theological discussion, which I think is a natural reaction when people start pressing in on the real heart of the matter with us. Don't we like to change the subject? 
That's, that's what she does. Jesus says, yeah, go call your husband. You've had five, and now the one you're with is not your husband. And what's her natural response? She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I'm kind of saying that with a joking tone. But what would you do if you were cornered in that situation? You'd probably want to deflect a little bit and say, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Yes, obviously, I have issues. You must be a prophet. Let's engage in a different kind of conversation now. She goes on, and she says, uh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, and meaning you, Jew, Jewish man, you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. She goes from a deep-level personal conviction to a theological discussion. I wonder how many times that happens to us, especially those of us who have been in or around a church setting for a rather long time. We, we avoid some of the deeper personal stuff and we get into theological nuance and discussions, controversies even. We don't do that just with religion. We do that with anything. We do that with politics. We do that with ways of upbringing. We do that with our sports teams. Like we find anything we can do to get riled up about one thing and justify us not dealing with other people or our own internal stuff and baggage. She talks about this mountain garrison, nor in Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about the differences of growing up as a Samaritan versus an Israelite and everything else. These are just theological nuances and discussions. They're controversies. They can just be distractions. You know, if you have it, Chris, can you, show, can you throw up that, that slide we talked about? It's hard to see. That's intentionally. Do you know what this is? This is the family tree of the Christian tradition. Next time somebody says to you, well, the Christian tradition this, the Christian tradition that, the Christian tradition says this, the Christian tradition doesn't allow that. I want you to have this image in your mind. Because at this time where Jesus and the woman are talking are about up there in the top four blue categories. And it was already pretty controversial then what they're talking about, the difference between worshiping on Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem. Do you see how many branches have fallen off just from that point to today? This is our family history. Let me tell you where we are. We're somewhere in like the purple as a PCA church. We're somewhere in the middle, surrounded by all these constellations of people that claim to say, we actually love and worship Jesus. We believe in him. We just choose to read the ESV versus the Old King James. We Not just prefer, what's that? Not all of us do. Not all of us do, right, right. Um, we prefer um, old hymns versus we like to rock out on Sundays. We believe you should uh, sprinkle children to bring them into the church, or we believe you should be dunked as an adult. I mean, do any of these, like, sound familiar? Do you know what they all have in common? They're somewhere in the constellation of colors or a family tree. Next time somebody says the Christian tradition this, the Christian tradition that, I want you to stop and ask them, what Christian tradition? We don't have a Christian tradition. We have a Christ. That's the point Jesus is getting at here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, it's not either about this mountain or Jerusalem. It's not about this nuance or that controversy. 
This is all a deflection. This is a distraction. This is what we like to consume ourselves with because we're being consumed by something else that is replacing our deep-seated thirst and need for God. Jesus is trying to get her off of these shallow ways of thinking and instead say, know what you're really thirsty for. She says in verse 25, the woman said, after all of these things, Jesus saying it's not this mountain or that mountain, it's a time when my, the Father is seeking worshipers who are going to worship him in spirit and truth. She finally breaks down and says, I know that Messiah, that is the Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus ends with saying, I who speak to you am he. From that point on, we see the satisfying transformation of the woman. What happens next is she literally drops her jar, leaves her jug, and goes back into the town or the village. She goes and she proactively seeks out the people she was just trying to avoid. She doesn't hide her sin or her shame anymore. In fact, she kind of boasts about it. All in a matter to deflect attention back to Jesus and say, forget about me and what I've done. Let's go to him and see what he's all about. This woman goes from living in isolation to engagement. She goes back into the village. She goes from resentment to compassion. She doesn't, she doesn't blame them for how they treat her. She goes and she says, there's something greater than this, the way you've treated me or looked at me or thought of me or perceived me up till now. She goes from a place of shame to a place of testimony. She boasts about a man who told her everything she's ever done. She goes from a place of pain to a place of praise. She stops hiding. She stops signing herself, her pain, or her sin. She shares it all so that they can know Jesus for themselves. And notice, too, all of this was of her own accord. Jesus didn't tell her, like he will other people, go and sin no more. He doesn't tell her, go up and tell other people about me. He doesn't tell her, now that you're a Christian, you have to do A, B, C, and D. She just gets up, and her life is completely different now. And she goes and tells others about it. And what do they do? They come out to see the same man who told this woman everything he, she ever did. In other words, she now gets this living water that Jesus has offered her. And it has welled up within her a life she did not know and she could only have dreamed about before. Everything that was ruling her life has now bowed its knee to the one true king, the true Messiah, the true Christ, Jesus. So the only question that's left with us now is how can we get this living water? How can our lives be turned around and transformed like this woman's? Notice something that we didn't focus on in verse 21. Jesus, in the midst of this theological discussion, in verse 21 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. You remember when we talked earlier when Jesus talks about this hour in John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana, he turns the water into wine, and he looks at his mother and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Jesus is talking about his hour here, and every time Jesus mentions his hour, he's talking about his death on the cross. He is telling this woman, the hour is coming when the Gerizim Mountain, Jerusalem, all these distractions, all these other things aren't going to matter. Notice when he's saying this, he's saying that you're going to still worship. He didn't say that the place of worship doesn't matter either. He just says that this mountain or this city doesn't matter. In other words, he, we still need a place to worship. We still need a place that acts as a temple, a place where we can connect with God. We still need a place where we can offer a sacrifice and receive atonement and restoration to God and redemption for all of our sin and all of our shame. The, the hour here refers not to a mountain or a city or a tradition. It refers to a person whose hour would come on the cross. Jesus himself comes to Samaria and stops at the well to talk to this woman because he's thirsty, and Jesus will be thirsty again. In John 19, verse 28, Jesus is on the cross, and it says there that knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What does it mean when John says that Jesus said this to fulfill the scripture? He's talking about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the great messianic psalms that talk about the coming Christ. It's the one that Jesus would quote on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That same psalm goes on to say in verse 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws like the body's natural reaction when it's devoid of any water. You, God, lay me in the dust of death. Jesus was poured out like water so that we could receive his living water. Jesus was thirsty to the point of total emptiness so we could be truly filled with life. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we could be redeemed and restored to the Father who gives us what our souls desperately crave, the only satisfying living water we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you love us better than we ever deserved or we will really ever know. When our souls are thirsty and seeking satisfaction in something, you give us the only thing we need. Help us to see and savor your son, Jesus. Let our hearts be quenched by him and change our lives to where we seek nothing other than you and share you with the world around us. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.